You're listening to the Table Church Podcast. The Table is a community in Orville, California that aims to follow Jesus by doing what he did. Love God, love our neighbors, and serve those in need. Find us at thetablechurch.net, Instagram, or Facebook. And now for the message. Uh, we are, we got a lot going on today, and so... Um... My apologies, I do this to you a lot, but we are going to read the whole Bible. If you have any questions or comments, there's your text number to send to me. I'm happy to see them and try to receive them. It's open now, and we'll do our best to answer those as they come in. If I don't know, I'll try to let you know throughout the week, and if I don't know then, we will learn together. Uh, We hate to fail. That's the deal of this sermon series, because according to this leading researcher, uh, she says, failure inspires shame, which makes us have negative thoughts about ourself, our identity, who we are at the core of us. But one of the truths about failure is that it's one of the most important tools that God has for our own healing and growth. And so we're looking at biblical failures to see how God and biblical actors react and are changed and transformed. And today we're talking about King David, the shepherd. Maybe, maybe as a purely human character in the Bible, the most important. Uh, But, uh, so he's got a lot of story and we got a lot of story to cover. So I want to give you the whole deal today right off the bat. I'm just going to tell you what I'm going to try to tell you. And then I'm going to try to prove it. And then we can try to take something from it. I don't have a lot of stories and illustrations because we're just using the Bible today. Uh, but we're going to be on our way. Here's what I'm going to try to convince you of in the next 30 minutes, that David was chosen to become king because he was a shepherd. He was chosen to be a shepherd-like ruler. This is why he was chosen. This is his function and purpose as becoming king. The failure or the problem that happens with David is that he becomes a violent warrior. He, be, he forsakes his shepherdness and leans into the warriorness. David is ultimately redeemed at the end when he becomes a shepherd again. That's what I'm going to try to convince you of. This is what I think almost everybody gets wrong when they read the story of David. Because it's so confusing that he's called a man after God's own heart. He, he becomes the model for what the Messiah is going to be like in the Old Testament heading into Jesus. But so much of his life is plagued by issue after issue after issue. And so how do we reconcile him being a man after God's own heart and all the abuse uh, that he commits throughout his reign? And I think it's this whole issue is that he was supposed to be a shepherd. He ends up becoming a warrior and ultimately is redeemed again when his shepherdness takes the most prominent part of his identity. Let's look. What I'm going to try to convince you of is David is almost always associated with sheep. I'm going to hit a couple stories. I got to summarize them. You can disagree with my summary if you want. I have a couple verses up here though. In the beginning of David's story, there's already a king. His name is Saul. Uh, He was basically chosen by Samuel the prophet because he was tall and handsome. He was a head taller than everybody else in Israel, it is said. And so Samuel, the prophet, feels like maybe he made a mistake. He chose somebody based on the outward appearance rather than the inward heart. And so Samuel, the prophet, sandbags Saul at the pomegranate tree. 
I'll just throw that out there. That'd be a pretty controversial take if we are Old Testament scholars, but that's what happens. Poor Saul gets sandbagged. And they got to find a new king. They got to find a new king. And this time Samuel is not going to base it on outward appearance alone. Tall, dark, and handsome ain't going to cut it. We need someone with heart. And so God tells Samuel to go to the house of Jesse. So he goes to Jesse's house and he says, bring all your sons to me. And Jesse lines up his son from oldest to youngest. And Samuel goes through and he goes, not this one, not this one, not this one, not this one. Is there any more? And Jesse goes, yeah, the littlest one, the kind of most worthless one of the bunch is not here. And Samuel, the prophet says, bring him. This is the scripture. There is still the youngest one, Jesse answered, but he's out keeping the sheep. Sin for him. It's King David. He's the one who gets chosen. But right off the bat, his identity is tied to sheep keeping. The next story is the current king, King Saul, is being plagued by an evil spirit. And the only thing that will soothe him is beautiful music. Well, David, the newly anointed next king of Israel, is pretty good at music. And so what does Saul say? The scripture tells us Saul sent messengers to Jesse, David's dad, to say, send me your son, David, the one who keeps sheep. His identity is tied to sheep keeping again. Then we get to the most famous David story in all of scripture, David and Goliath. I love that Goliath has a sweet red beard in this one. I know, he's a ginger, and they're, they're the best. So many times sheep keeping comes up in this story. Um, it's hard to deny that this is what's going on, but essentially David is not at this battle. The Philistines send out their biggest, baddest warrior uh, with the most military tech. That's really the point of the story. His, his, he is tall, but he's, he's also got the latest and greatest military tech. David shows up from keeping the sheep to bring some cheeses. It is plural in your Bible. We would say he brought some cheese, but David brought some cheeses. And, um, and he says, why isn't anyone going out to fight this Philistine? And they said, he's too big. And he says, well, send me, I'll go. And King Saul at the time says, in this great line, you can't go out and fight the Philistine you are still a boy, but he's been a warrior since he was a boy. Like, it's just a great turn of phrase. It's even better in the Hebrew. And David says, I kept sheep. Man, I'm such a good shepherd. His whole argument is about his identity as a shepherd. God protected me then. God protected me, will protect me now. When the lions and the bears came, I killed them. This Philistine will become like one of them because I'm such a sick shepherd. And then they try to put armor on him and it doesn't work because that's not who he is. He's not a warrior. He's a shepherd. And so he goes to the stream and he picks out the five smooth stones and we want to focus on the stones. But the story also tells us that he has a shepherd's staff, which is why I chose this picture. It's there. And he put the stones in his shepherd's bag. He is tied to being a shepherd even in this story. His whole argument about why he should get to fight Goliath is because he's a shepherd. Then finally, when David becomes king and becomes enthroned over all of Israel, the Israelites come to him and they make a covenant 
with their new king, David. And this is what they say. All the Israelite tribes came to David and said, you were the one who led Israel out and brought it in. This is shepherd language. This is sheep language. But in case you didn't catch it, what's more, the Lord told you, you will shepherd my people, Israel. Uh, you will shepherd my people, Israel, and you will be Israel's leader. David is enthroned because he's a shepherd, because he has a shepherd's heart. This is his whole identity. But things start to go awry. David wants to build a temple for God, and God says no. God says, I've been like a shepherd, wandering around in the wilderness. I don't need a box. God says, I never asked any of the shepherd leaders of Israel ever to make me a box house. And that affects negative, uh, David in a negative way, and he begins a series of wars where he is super duper successful. Then, this is the only picture of David and Bathsheba I could find that didn't contain nudity. So, there's a story about this woman named Bathsheba, and she's doing her ritualistic purification, right, after... And she's on the, on the rooftop, and she's bathing, and she's not clothed. And David has a higher vantage point, and he, and he sees her, and he says, I want to be with her. And so he takes her and stays the night with her, and she becomes pregnant. And so then he concocts a plan to try to f cover up the pregnancy, and the plan doesn't work because her husband is just a much more righteous man than David is. And so ultimately, David has her husband Uriah killed, in military battle as a warrior and David takes her as his wife and he doesn't feel any remorse about any of that at all. So finally, the prophet Nathan comes to him and says, I have some bad news for you. See, there was a rich man who had visitors coming, but he didn't want to use up any of his own sheep for the party to eat. Ooh, that's Holy Spirit right there. He didn't want to use any of his own sheep for the party. And so he, the rich man stole a sheep from a poor man to feed it to his party guest. David gets incensed. He's enraged. How dare this rich man steal from this poor man? And Nathan says, it was a parable. You're the rich man. And you stole Uriah's wife, and you should be ashamed. And David is beside himself. It's only when he connects to his shepherd identity does he realize the error and sin of his, uh, of his actions. And so, I want to convince you that David was at his best when he was a shepherd. His failure comes when he forsakes the shepherdness and becomes a violent, self-serving warrior king. The song that is sung about David is this. All the ladies sing this song. Saul, the old king, has killed his thousands, but David his ten thousands. And so this is where I think some of the problem gets in. 
the skills that David used to defend the sheep, sometimes he would have to step up. Sometimes he'd have to stop the bears and the wolves and the lions. Those skills eventually brought him fame, acclaim, and admiration. And this turned into a bloodlust, a thirst for violence. We know that he became very good at killing because when he asks God if he could build a temple, God says, well, he repeats it. David's telling his son, my son, I had intended to build a temple for the name of the Lord, my God, but the Lord told me you've shed much blood and you've waged lots of wars. You won't build a temple for my name because you've spilled so much blood. Ultimately, this warriorness took over and prevented him from even getting to do things he wanted for God. And here's where I think the failure maybe applies to all of us. Is that the things you get attention and affirmation for can become the things that you lean into, but not necessarily the things that God has called you to. Are you feeling me on this? Does this make sense? You might get a lot of affirmation and attention for something and then pour a lot of energy and time developing that but it's not what God has asked you to do. I know this has been true in my life multiple times, even in the ministry. I led worship for a long, long time, and I had a lot of fun doing it, but I knew that that wasn't what God had called me to. But I did it anyways for a long time because the church needed it, and it, it fulfilled a function, and I got a lot of affirmation and attention for it. And so I delayed the thing that I knew that God had called me to so that I could do this thing, that was fun, and uh, I got affirmation for. Same thing happened with being an associate pastor, which was the same thing. I knew that wasn't what I was going to do the rest of my life. I knew I needed to go to school, but I delayed it and delayed it because I just was kind of waiting around, and things were going well, and I enjoyed where I was, but I knew it wasn't what God had called me to. My wife Erin says she has a similar story, where right out of high school, she became an x-ray tech. She started taking x-rays, and it paid the bills, and she was excellent at it but she did not feel like that's what she was supposed to do. And it's only in the last two years that she's really made a decision when her job came to her and said, we want you to advance even further into this field. And she went, I never really wanted to do this in the first place. This is something I did to make sure we had money. There's ways in which you can lean into something that's giving you a lot of affirmation and attention, but it's not necessarily what God called you to. You feeling me on this? Great. So now we got to get to one more story, the main story, but it's also, again, a long one. You, uh, hold on. We're almost out of the weeds. But this is the story where everything comes to a head. This is the story where David's confronted with his failure to do what he was called to do and repents and changes, and the rest of the story is incredibly different because of it. It's David in the census. The story is so important, it's repeated two times. Once in 1 Samuel 24, and the other times in 1 Chronicles 22. I'm doing the 24 one. Uh, and here's what the story says. The Lord burned with anger against Israel again, and he incited David against them. And he says, go count the people of Israel. Take a census of Israel and Judah, which is the northern and southern kingdoms here. Yeah. And so King David said to his military commanders who were with him, go and count the people. The military commanders knew 
and understood what David was saying, and they resisted. We, we don't really want to do this. But the king's word overruled Joab and the military commanders. And this long paragraph says, they went everywhere, and they counted everyone. But then Joab reported to the king, giving the king the information that he wants. We've got to read between the lines. We've got to look at the details here. But this is what the story says. The military commander Joab reported to the king the number of people who had been counted in Israel. There were 800,000 strong men who could handle the sword. David doesn't count the people. David essentially sends them on a mission to only count the military men, those able to fight in battle. David counted the warriors because the thing you get attention and affirmation for becomes the thing you lean into, but not necessarily the thing God has called you to. After doing this, David felt terrible that he'd counted the people. David said to the Lord, I've sinned greatly in what I have done. Now, Lord, please take away the guilt of your servant because I have done something very foolish. David got up the next morning. The Lord's word came to him through a different prophet named Gad. And that prophet said, you get three punishments of three. You get to pick. Pick one. Which is not a great situation to be in. Gad says, here are your three punishments of three. Your choice. Gad went to David and said, you can have three years of famine in the land. You can run from your enemies for three months while they chase you. Or for three days, a plague will hit the land. And let me tell you what this plague is. It's like a 200-foot angel with a flaming sword that's going to kill like 70,000 people. Your pick. What do you pick? King, queen, which one do you pick? Three years famine, three months of running from your enemies, or a 200-foot angel with a flaming sword? Not a lot of great options. David says, I'm in deep trouble. But he says, let's fall into the hands of the Lord because the Lord is very merciful. And let me not fall into human hands. If you're reading between the lines, he's using religious language to say, I don't want my enemies chasing me. Let's do a plague. Let's do that 200-foot angel thing and see what happens. Maybe God will relent. And that's what happens. The Lord sent a plague on Israel from that very morning until the allotted time. 70,000 people died. But when the angel stretched out his hand to destroy Jerusalem, the capital city, the Lord regretted doing this disaster and said to the angel who was destroying the people, that's enough. Withdraw your hand. At that time, the Lord's angel was by the threshing floor of this guy from this place. At that time, David saw the angel who was striking down the people and he said, I'm the one who sinned. These sheep, what have they done wrong? Turn your hand against me. This is the pivotal moment. This is the moment in his sin of forsaking his call to be a shepherd that he realizes it, that he sacrificed his own sheep, his own people for his own comfort, and his heart is convicted and he repents to the Lord and he owns it. He forgot that they were sheep. 
He was only counting warriors. He remembers. This is the moment where he turns and says, God, I'm the one who's at fault. I'm the one who should be punished. Skipping some more details, it ends with, David built an altar there for the Lord and offered entirely burned offerings and well-being sacrifices, and the Lord responded to the prayers for the land, and the plague against Israel came to an end. Are we all on the same page? No more story. What I tried to prove to you was that he was at his best when he was a shepherd. He forsook, is that a word? Forsooken? That's not a word. He forsaked? What's the past tense? Preterite, past tense. Of for, he, he let go of his call to be a shepherd. He leaned too much into this thing that he got all this acclaim for. And ultimately, God brings him to this point of, of fresh vision and repentance so that he can become the shepherd king he was always meant to be. And he does, and it changes everything. Head, heart, hands. What does God want us to know in all of that David story? What does God want us to feel? And what does God want us to do or experience with that? And here's what I'm taking away, but we talked about a million stories. This is just my takeaway. But what I want you to know, what I think God wants you to know, is that sheep shepherd is one of our primary identity markers and ways of relating to God. Shepherd isn't just a call for David. It becomes a way of understanding God so that we can say the Psalm 23, right? The Lord is my shepherd. But it's also a way of understanding who we are as sheep. Our culture has made sheep a bad thing. But I got to tell you, it has always not been a good thing, right? Like no culture was like, oh, it's great to be a sheep. Which is the radical thing about our faith is that we owned it. We said, it's, we get why it's not great, but we're going to own it anyways because it describes our relationship to God so well. To the point that even Jesus is a sheep slash lamb. Lamb is a baby sheep, if you didn't know. I looked it up just to make sure I wasn't spouting nonsense. Jesus is the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. In Revelation, the primary metaphor for Jesus is the slain lamb the one who was slain from the foundations of the world. Jesus, this is such an important identity marker that even Jesus is called a sheep because we've discovered and decided and understood that we need guidance, that we need wisdom, direction, protection, and a flock. I know we all want to be lions, we all want to be the main character in our own story, but one of the confessions as a Christian is that we're broken, and we don't know, and we can't do it by ourselves. And so sheep has become a great identity marker for us because we need one another, and we need wisdom outside of ourselves, guidance, direction, and protection from God. More even than that, David's shepherd kingness is so important to the biblical text that it becomes the ideal leader, the ideal king, and it even becomes the hope of the future Messiah slash Savior, Jesus, for us. So much so that when Jesus shows up, he says, I'm the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. And Jesus teaches us about shepherdness and sheepiness 
Jesus doesn't kill for the sheep. Jesus dies for the sheep. This is an important quality, what it means to be a Christian and a follower of Jesus. Which, by the way, is how David redeems and repents in this situation. He doesn't kill to make the plague go away. He sacrifices himself, rightly so. And that makes all the difference. Great, what does God want us to feel from this story? What does God want us to experience inside of us personally, individually? How does this story connect to who we are? I think it's this, and this is a thing that I'd love to get across to you forever, is that redemption isn't perfection. It's way bigger and better than that. Redemption isn't perfection. The Bible gets redemption in a way that we don't. The Bible is so good at redemption in a way that we sometimes don't even understand. Can we go back to the Genesis series a while ago? Abraham, Father Abraham, the beginning of, of uh, Judaism and Hebrewism, Abraham is given 10 tests of faith. You remember, we went through all 10. How many did he fail? All of them, but the last one. He fails the first nine, and he passes the 10th with flying colors. The 10th one, if you remember, is him asked to sacrifice his son. His only begotten son was Sarah, the child of promise. Remember, with Sodom and Gomorrah, he cries out, God, what if there's 50 people? Don't destroy that city. He argues with God in Sodom and Gomorrah. When God says, hey, sacrifice your son, no arguing. Says he gets up early, packs the donkeys himself, loads the... He's got two servants standing right there. He says, I don't have time for you. I'm just going to put the... Like, he's... He's so faithful in this last test that he becomes the model of faith, of what it means to have faith. He is so redeemed that he becomes the example for everyone about what it is. And he fails 90% of the time. That's not great. But he got the last one right, and that last one paints his whole legacy. Same thing happens with David. His whole reign is a mess. He's shedding blood. He's stealing other people's wives. His own children become king for a while and run him out of town and chase him all over the place. And there's ancestral situations going on and his household's a mess. His kingdom's a mess. He's, he's, he's just, it's not going well. He's self-serving over self-sacrificing. But at the end, he gets it. And he becomes the picture of a model leader, namely a shepherd. What the Bible wants to convince us about redemption is that re redemption repaints their whole reality. Even though 90% of it was not great, the, the final act of God's redeeming quality and redeeming nature is that their whole story gets repainted through this lens of redemption. The redeemed are completely remembered through their redemption. Which is sometimes why we got to be careful because we're like, well, David did this and he's a man after God's own heart. And you're like, no, but not that part though. That's not the part that was made him a man after God's own heart, right? Well, David did this and he's a great leader. Yeah, that, God wasn't condoning that. But because his final act of redemption by God repaints his whole reality, sometimes it, 
all gets included, but we need to understand how the Bible does redemption. But I want you to know that God has redeemed you, and that can repaint your whole reality as well. But sometimes we say, well, I have a past, and I'm not perfect. God's working on me. No. No. Don't do that. God has done some incredible stuff in you. God is redeeming you, your story and your purpose, and it repaints all of it. All the flaws, all the mistakes, all the sins. That redemption is all covering. And this is the way the Bible does redemption. And this is how I would love for you to walk more confidently in Jesus because Jesus has redeemed you. If you let it, it can repaint your whole life with love and goodness. As the psalmist says, give thanks to the Lord because he is good, because his faithful love lasts forever. That's what the redeemed of the Lord say. We get to let that goodness and faithfulness repaint our whole story if we let it. Or we can just keep walking around kind of milk toast. God's working on me. Lastly, what does God want us to do? What does God want us to do with this story? If you have questions, send them. If you don't, we will pray our way out. I think this is what God has called us to. Shepherdness is such an important value for God that God has called us to shepherd one another. To use the quality of shepherd for each other. First Peter, both my verses are going to be from First Peter, says that you are a royal priesthood, a chosen race. There are, like I get to be pastor of this community, but how the church has understood that is that I'm the first among equals, that we're equals here, and you let me become the pastor. By the way, pastor is just the Greek word for shepherd. I mean, you get it. The Greek word for pastor is shepherd. You've let me be that, right? As an equal among you, you let me become the spiritual shepherd for the community, but that doesn't abdicate you from your own priestliness, from your own ability through the Holy Spirit to shepherd, to guide, direct, protect, help, do life with. Peter will ultimately say, like shepherds, tend the flock of God among you and watch over it. Pope Francis writes, the Pope gets to write stuff periodically. And in it, his last one, he wrote about an active church, what an active church is. He says, an active church gets involved by word and deed in people's daily lives. It bridges distances. It's willing to abase itself if necessary. And it embraces human life, touching the suffering flesh of Christ and others, thus taking on the smell of the sheep. You should smell sheep-like because of your shepherdness with one another, because of your way of shepherding folks. Again, let me say, I don't think shepherdness is voluntary. If you are in any kind of leadership position, maybe it's with your kids, maybe it's with your job, shepherdness should be what you are striving for. We all might not be called to be pastors of a church, but shepherding is such a high value for God that we are all called to be shepherd-like with one another.
And so I leave you with this question. Who are you intentionally shepherding? Guiding, leading, directing, coming alongside of? Who do you smell like when it comes to the sheep? Questions, comments, ideas, criticisms. Past tense of forsake is forsook. I was close. Was I close? Did I say forsooken though? I think I said forsooken. Is that right? <laughs> Thanks. Thanks for looking up whoever that was. What does God want us to know? With our head, sheep and shepherd is one of the primary identity markers. I think so much, especially in our postmodern world, so much of our journey is trying to figure out who we are and who God is. And you won't go wrong if you think at least part, in part, of your identity and who God is through this idea of sheep and shepherd. That is going to help. Our culture is going to be resistant to it. We're already calling each other sheep negatively, which is ironic to me as Christians that we would do that. But this identity marker will be helpful for us as we navigate who we are and who God is. With our heart... What the Bible wants us to experience is that redemption isn't perfection. You don't, it's not, just because God has redeemed you, you don't have to expect perfection. It's bigger and better that it can repaint your whole story through the acts that God is doing in and through you, through the healing and growing that's possible in Jesus Christ. And so lean in to that redemption and let God's redeeming acts repaint your whole story. And lastly, figure out who you're shepherding and shepherd one another as the royal priesthood of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the story of David. Uh, We, I don't know, it was a lot, but we pray that you would give us something from it to chew on. Maybe we're in the boat of David that you've called us to something, but maybe we've kind of invested in something else. Gotten off track. Maybe stepped out of your guidance for a moment. Would you convict us and challenge us and help us to get back in your will and in your way? Or Lord, maybe we just need a moment of clarity like David gets where we've been not doing it well. We know it, but we need your help to figure that out. Show us, Lord. Help us. Give us strength. We pray, not for 200-foot angels, but for gentle guidance and correction. But Lord, ultimately, would we experience that redemption that changes the whole narrative, that changes our whole life story? Would we be overwhelmed with the forgiveness of grace that you have for us? The ways that you're taking this muddy mess of our life and turning it into something beautiful, setting us free, for your purpose, for your kingdom, but ultimately so that we could just be close to you and be yours forever as our chief shepherd who watches over us. 
Father, as we come now to this time of cup and bread, would you be present in it as you've promised to do, meeting us here that would not just be consuming food, but a genuine spiritual encounter with you, a taste and foretaste of your grace in our life. And Table Church, would you finish this prayer with me, saying, Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever.